listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. This past fall, I read an article from Canada about a new program called the Indigenous Death Doula Mentorship. It was started by Blackbird Medicines and the Indigenous Death Doula Collective. Youth in the program train with these death doulas on how to incorporate traditional knowledge and practices in supporting their families and communities when someone dies. Crystal Toop is the founder of Blackbird Medicines, and she's also a life spectrum doula. That means that she works with people going through transitions at any stage of life. Moments after finishing the article, I turned to Google to help me get in touch with Crystal. Thankfully, she responded to my email and had the honor of talking with her this past month. In our conversation, I got the sense that the Indigenous Death Doula Mentorship is exactly the program she needed as a young adult. Crystal was a young mother when her beloved grandmother died, and she felt so disconnected from the end-of-life rituals and traditions surrounding that death. The work she does today is all about helping people reconnect. Reconnect with themselves, with their communities, and with the Indigenous knowledge that guides the practices and traditions for life transitions— especially honoring someone in their death. The response to the program was amazing. The available spots filled quickly, and there was a long wait list. Indigenous youth from across Canada and even the states were eager to sign up, wanting to learn how to help their families and communities as they navigate loss. Communities that, because of racism and long-standing systemic inequality, have been hit hard by both suicide and the COVID-19 pandemic. Crystal, thank you so much for being part of Grief Out Loud today. I'm looking forward to seeing where our conversation goes today. Same here, and thanks for having me. I'm uh, I'm really excited about this. Can you introduce yourself a little bit? Absolutely. My name is Crystal Waban, Crystal Waban Toop to some, and I'm a member I'm a member of the Downriver people, also known as the Algonquin of Pequotnagon First Nation, and I am a member of the Bear Clan. What were some of your first experiences with grieving, particularly grieving a death in your life? Well, I, my first experience was losing uh, a grandparent, and, and that's a pretty common uh, experience for people. I first lost my my grandmother on my father's side, and uh, that's my French Canadian side, and we called her Mamere, and she passed away when I was fifteen. Not long after my uncle passed uh, from cancer, one of her children, that was very that was a lot more difficult because I had been closer with my uncle. Um, he had I had grown up with him, uh, seeing him in my life at a regular, quite a, quite regular. Uh, and my family is originally from Northern Ontario, and uh, this can be familiar to folks who live in rural communities where, you know, you move away or you move away for jobs and things like that. And you only get to see each other maybe once a year or sometimes even less. It's every couple of years. 
So for our family, that was the case. And to have a closer ongoing relationship over many years with a relative was kind of unique for me. Uh, so when he, I actually had lived with him for a time as a teenager when I was kind of, uh, when I had left home, they had me living with them for a month. So it was a much more impact I found because I, I knew my uncle more than I knew my mom there. Um, and then a few more years later, I lost my grandmother on my mother's side. And that really is what I think uh, grounded myself in grieving. Like I had grieved my uncle uh, but I, my grandmother had been there from day one and she had been this, you know, more of uh, the traditional intergenerational care that uh, some families are, are fortunate to know. You know, seeing her at Christmases, she was a grandma of proximity and she was also, you know, that matrilineal connection. Uh, my mother's mother, she had a lot of mysticism about her. She believed in rebirth and you know, she had all, she brought me a lot of culture and spirituality in my life. And when she passed, um, in a lot of ways, it seemed like a first experience with grief because it was really shattering in a lot of ways. And I was a young parent, so she had hung on, she met her great grandson, my child, and uh, died a few hours later. I've always grieved that she didn't get to to know my kids better and and I named my daughter after her in the long run. But uh, she was definitely my biggest teacher for, for death and grief and loss. What did that grief feel like to you? Like, how did it, how did it affect you? Well, for myself, I wasn't, I'd always had like a, like a high conflict relationship with my parents. Uh, from a small age, you know, there's all kinds of cute little anecdotes about me being, you know, a cantankerous child and things like that. Um, but I always had a lot of trust with my grandmother. It felt like I had lost a, a parent more than a grandparent. She had always been a person to take time and interpret things for me. And she had always been a person who encouraged me to use my voice. And she always tried to empower me. You know, she herself was one of the oldest daughters in a family of 18. So by the time she came to become a mother and then a grandmother, um, it was kind of like kicking down to low gear maybe a bit because there wasn't <laughs> as many of us. So I was her first grandkid. My child was her first great-grandchild. And I think about her a lot. With her death, I was pretty ignorant and unconnected to my culture you know, not understanding things about sacred medicines and traditional medicines for Indigenous culture, um, because that had a role in her burial and in her, um, you know, in her funeral process with our family, but I didn't understand any of it. So I had a lot of issues of like anger and um, just a lot of things going on that I didn't understand till much, much later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it seems as you're talking like this process of grieving in the context of feeling disconnected or being disconnected to the meaning of what's happening when we're grieving as individuals and families and communities. And, and now in your present day work, it seems like you're in this role of helping people build or re-bridge those connections. And, you know, I'm familiar with the term death doula. That's something I've heard quite a bit. But when you and I have talked about the work that you do, you describe it as being a life spectrum doula. Could you talk more about that? 
Absolutely. Um, it's, it's an important distinction around the, you know, all these different doula uh, incarnations. For myself, being a life spectrum doula is more about embodying a traditional role, uh, the role of a caregiver. And, you know, it's got like a cool, you know, fashionable, trendy buzzword like doula that has all kinds of meanings around it. But when I look at uh, the work that I've done and the work that I continue to do, you know, death doulas are very specific around, you know, transitioning end of life, end of life care. Whereas a life spectrum doula, from an Indigenous perspective, which is what I've been, you know, working, working into all of this is, you know, sometimes the life spectrum part is you're helping people to reduce their, their chances of dying. You're reducing the harm in their life that would lead to an untimely death. Because when, with death doula work, we know that everyone has the right to a good death. Everyone has the right to be safe, be housed, be free of pain and suffering. That is the right to a good death. But when we look at, uh, you know, the challenges that have um, been part of colonization, sometimes the work is reducing from like reducing the harm of someone or the likelihood of someone actually dying. Sometimes that's um, working with someone who's struggling with mental health, um, getting in between and intervening around suicide. Sometimes that is uh, supporting someone in their addictions uh, because they've reached out and they don't want to die from their addictions. Other times uh, it's domestic violence or uh, helping someone to exit street life. It's for myself, being a life spectrum doula is about supporting people who come across my path and need my help. And more often than not, it might be working to help someone maybe with birth, but if there's failure to thrive for the mother or the child, then now I'm, I'm working as reducing harm around death. And that's for both that mother and child. So the life spectrum piece is, is recognizing that uh, death can infiltrate any stage of life for Indigenous families and our, our right to a good death also walks in harmony with the right to a good life. With this idea of, of working with people it, from a harm reduction perspective, do you have a sense of, a, of the ways in which your work is around harm reduction in grief? So say you're working with a family and someone has died. And then is there, a, is there a place for that? Absolutely. Uh, particularly with uh, mental health. Um, I know for a while when, you know, something that, you know, many folks have, have kept an eye on are, you know, the high suicide rates in remote communities, Indigenous communities, things like that. I remember for a long time learning about kind of these media principles where you don't, put things about suicide in the headline because it could inspire some kind of massive chain reaction. And like the word suicide would just trigger immediate feelings of suicide or something. And it was this weird uh, place that, you know, we weren't supposed to talk about it, but we we're also supposed to f address it. And when we're working with grief, uh, that context of grief and, and harm reduction you know, you don't want that person to have their life 
spiral out of control because of their grief. And that's a harm reduction piece. So, and, and this is something that I've heard many elders, but also academics and clinicians say that the, the cure for suicidal ideation or you know, isolation is connection. The counter solution is, is always gonna be connection. And, and that's where that harm reduction piece comes into play with grief work. Uh, sometimes it's just like, I know it's been a rough week. Why don't you tell me about it? Or, you know, at the end of that session, it's don't worry, we're going to connect again next week. And sometimes it's creating a safety plan, very similar to a woman who, or a man who wants to leave an abusive or unsafe situation. There's going to be safety planning, steps to take, what you do. It's identical when you're helping someone in their grief and offering harm reduction, make a plan of how can you minimize, minimize harm? Okay, so on Thursdays, you check in with your other kids. And, you know, Sundays, you maybe have a Zoom meal because we have to plan in the pandemic time now. You know, so it's, you know, and oh, here I found um, a session about teachings on Zoom that this organization is running. I'm forwarding this along so you can hopefully continue to connect with others. But also normalizing the discussion is a huge part of the harm reduction where some people need time to get through their shock and that's okay, but they still will benefit from people checking in on them. And that's where the harm reduction always comes through people and connection always. Well, and I originally reached out to you because I had read an article about a program that you started this death doula mentorship program for youth. And it seems like it was rooted in that that re- that recognition that for a lot of youth, especially in more rural communities or you know indigenous rural indigenous communities, that there was this higher rate of suicidal ideation or suicidal action, and that these two things seem to interweave in a way. And I wonder if you could tell us about the program and what inspired you to start it. Well, the program was, you know, in in some ways it was a bit of a pilot because we had so much interest in the Death Doula Collective when we kind of officially and really like subtly launched on social media. (laughs) It it was not, I I didn't think it was a big splash that we had made, uh, but the requests for care came pouring in. And a lot of them were from youth who wanted to um, learn more about this work, learn more teachings to equip themselves to better support their families and their, their neighborhoods and their communities and their nations. You know, just like many things, the, the funeral industry has uh, been a very successful business, very successful facet of society and capitalism and all the other stuff. So it's, it's removed the normalization that we once had in our families. You know, I'm sure many of our grandparents would have stories about, you know, preparing a body at home once it had died, cleaning the body, um, dressing the body with family members and, you know, running the funeral out of your parlor kind of thing. So that's all gone now. We don't have any connection to any of it. And when someone dies, it's all the more traumatic because we don't have any ceremony around it we don't have any roles and that's where a lot of the death work has come into play to restore ways for folks to 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 manage their grief can be action 
and the youth coming to me, that's exactly what was happening. They, you know, their little cousin and their neighbor and uh, their best friend and their uncle, uh, you know, it's, it's that prevalent where one person will have five or six stories of suicide within a two year, three year span, closely impacting them, closely connecting their day to day life. And that's huge. And to have really feel like nowhere to turn because you know that others in your family are grieving and you don't want to add more burden to the load of others. And you're all, you know, struggling with the, the lack of the same knowledge. So at some point, somebody has to be the pioneer and bring it back. And, and that's where this all kind of grew out of. Uh, I myself was looking for traditional knowledge around death and that's where the Death Doula Collective came into play. And with the mentorship program, it was repeated requests of how do I get started? How do I get started? So the mentorship program was born and um, we did benefit from uh, a funding grant from the Canadian Roots Exchange. And they really supported us uh, with kind of two different projects. One that connected folks and provided traditional medicines to cope with the pandemic uh, and also healing circles and death cafes. The second funding totally allowed us to engage more death workers and provide this mentorship. And that was really what the mentorship was. You know, uh, we're a small group of six and we just were within a certain, you know, this whole idea began as a regional response, but the requests were coming in from across the country, the states as well. It was a bit overwhelming. So we, we looked at, you know, who are these youth reaching out? And, and that's where the mentorship idea came into play was to empower the youth to find their own solutions and to support them and to create a way to, to offer that support. So that's what we did. Um, we had 40 interested youth who fit our funding age range right away. And uh, from there, we still have a waiting list of over 100 people uh, who were in and around the age group that we are you know, kind of planned to target. And it was always a bit of a Band-Aid idea because we knew that we needed to get a, a fulsome Indigenous death doula training program off the ground. And that's something that we're going to realize in 2021. And it'll be something that folks can participate at home, you know, take that training themselves and have it grounded in cultural offerings. It's going to be so, uh, I'm so excited for it, but it's going to be the, the, non-band-aid permanent functional thing that's really going to help folks take their inspiration with supporting others in, in death and dying and loss and just run with it. What did you hear from the youth that took part in the program? Like how, how did the experience affect them? Um, well, in some ways it's still ongoing. Um, you know, we're still the original mentorship idea was two one-on-one -on -one sessions and the opportunity to participate in several different death cafes. And, uh, but the feedback has been, I think, validating the work that they're already doing has been a big piece that I've been hearing about. You know, these youth have been feeling called to support those with grief and loss, but there's this sense that they needed to do more and they needed thing like the one uh, youth that I talked to that was working in hospice she's already doing a ton and applying for post-secondary programming but 
you know, in the first session, I had to say, well, you're already a death doula. You're doing it. Um, So that was, I think, the biggest uh, piece that I noticed for myself in the feedback was sometimes it's just getting validated with what you're doing and hearing that you're on the right track. And uh, for so many of them, they were, they were off and running already. I guess it was uh, in a way, some of the feedback was about empowerment, but also assurance that it's okay if you don't know anything around your culture and death. Many of us don't, you know, and, and kind of trying to restore, have you been to a, a powwow? Have you learned about a spirit plate? Encouraging people to find their, their own communities, traditions that maybe have been lost or learning to adapt as a contemporary peoples and Maybe, and a lot of us have to, like in Algonquin country, uh, there's been, you know, in my own nation, there's been so much loss. So many of the community people who have gone and learned and come back, they carry Haudenosaunee teachings, they carry Ojibwe teachings, because that's what they were able to gather. And it's okay to do that. We're, we're doing our best with what we have. Going back to you being a you know a young parent and your your grandmother who had really played this role of of parent and primary caregiver and, and real ally in your life and and she dies and there's some traditions and rituals happening that are connected to your culture and you're like I don't I don't understand this like I haven't been given these these teachings or this understanding and wondering it through your work now how has it affected you to build those connections, to, to reconnect with those teachings and that knowledge and those traditions? I think when I think back to that and, and how it impacts me now, it's to assure those that I'm working with and, and the clients too that we connect with, it's okay if you don't have those cultural teachings. And it's that space again of just, you know, giving room for people to be in different positions with their learning. And also some people are not at a point where they want to uh, embark on cultural teachings or carry those teachings because having those teachings is a responsibility, meaning that you, you know, you honor, you teach others and you also practice. So some folks feel that they're not ready and that's okay. For myself, when I think back to that, that young parent who, who was so upset and, at the time I didn't have the teachings and uh, my grandmother died from cancer and there was tobacco put into her coffin and it upset me, but I didn't understand that that was a sacred medicine at the time, you know, giving room for people to, to come in as they are. That's also harm reduction mm-hmm. and to not uh, should anyone there's, there's no culture police with me here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways that our generations have had to learn to uh, navigate the, the different traumas of colonization and racism and systemic harms. When I think about the 90s and a lot of the spaces I, I learned about uh, as I was coming into learning about culture, um, I saw many, many examples of people being excluded and alienated from the circle. And my teachings were never uh, to exclude anyone and that everyone belongs in the circle, indigenous and non-indigenous alike. We all have a place in the circle. 
you know, I've seen people turned away from, from the circle because they, they weren't wearing the right clothing or, you know, they were struggling with addictions and, you know, those are all important things to consider when you're, when you're having community events and children and things like that. But also sometimes the people we're excluding need to be in the circle. Most of all, that's part of the work of a doula is to find ways where they're comfortable finding an, a point to re-enter the circle. Maybe it's with culture, maybe it's with connection. Maybe it's just with, you know, acceptance. And Crystal, your work with this idea of being a life spectrum doula, you are walking alongside or entering into people's lives as they are facing a, a, a wide variety of challenges and struggles and celebrations and then when I think about my work, right, like I tell someone what I do and they're like, oh, that must be so hard and so sad. And I'm like, well, you know, here's all the things I do to take care of myself. Uh, but I'm entering people's lives at this very specific point. And I'm just thinking about you, like you've got the full spectrum of, of the life human experience. What helps you? Like, how do you carry this work? How do you carry yourself through this work? I think having perspective has been the best part like I'm a certain age I kind of know <laughs> what I do and don't want to do but also I'm I'm really fortunate to have good people that work with me that are part of my community and my kinship you know that I've I've been able to gather these great folks around me over the years uh, that I do this work and I share this work with so if having good boundaries is important you know boundaries for myself boundaries with my practice of care, it's taken good thought and trial and error. I remember I started out as a birth worker, a birth doula, and I was fortunate that uh, I was working in a social service organization that that, you know, that work really aligned with my position. And I had full support from my, my manager to, to be a doula on the job kind of thing. But I, I've struggled with uh, being in between, you know, I struggle with the trauma of parents being separated from babies, from birth alerts. And I struggled with not being able to provide support in a way that I was, you know, like many people in jobs, you know, you're limited by the role and the responsibilities of your job or of your role rather. So I, I, that's where I kept hitting walls. I wanted to do more, but I had limitations and I had to kind of shut down for a little while and re, re kind of configure and reevaluate what I could and couldn't do. And, and taking time to understand my own boundaries, to recognize where I had reached my limit. Those are important pieces to learn in this work. And I'm sure, you know, like you said, you, you have your own ways that you care for yourself. Uh, and, and sometimes for me, that, that care goes into, you know, saying no to things up front because I know it's not something I can put on my plate. Or, you know, having a support person that I can, you know, another death doula in the, in the collective that I can tag in to help me kind of manage uh, the needs of this client because maybe they can manage it better. Maybe it's more in that other doula's wheelhouse. That's the great thing of how we operate. Our operations are really uh, communal and collective. And if one of us can't help you, definitely two or three other people can. 
And, and that's important. Like I said, the boundaries, knowing myself and, you know, it's, it, it all goes into the self-care category, I think. And, and also knowing sometimes where, like, I think the end of last year, like COVID has been hard on us, all of us for different reasons and certainly some more than others. Right. But I know for myself and two of my other collective members, you know, we had to like tap out at the end of December. I was like, nope, for the next three weeks, like, sorry, nothing's happening here. And and that's okay. It's uh, this pandemic has, I, it might just be the solution to the glorification of busy. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Hindsight will tell us for sure. <laughs> I, I somehow have figured out a way to be more busy during this time. I, you know, but that's how that goes. And and I love your answer because I people students particularly ask me all the time, like, how do you how do you sustain yourself in this work? And I never know what to tell them. I'm like, here's all the answers I'm supposed to say because you are a class of graduate students, and I should say things like I attend to my physical body and I process my emotions and I take time for myself. And sometimes the real answer is like, I shove it down in a box while it's happening and I deal with it later because that's what you have to do to like get through the the moment with someone. But I think I want to take your answer, which is I've gotten to a certain age (laughs) where I've learned to say no and have boundaries. So that's going to be my new answer moving forward. (laughs) It's, you know, we should, we should be teaching like, you know, we know now that we should be teaching kids that from the get go, right. To identify where their own comfort levels are how to set boundaries, and to give zero Fs about how other people feel about our boundaries. You know, (laughs) it's the hardest thing to learn. You know, it's especially in Canada. It's like, well, that's not polite. (laughs) Not being helpful at all. Oh, well, Crystal, thank you. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for taking time to talk with me today. And before we sign off, just for listeners who want to learn more about uh, the Death Doula Collective and the youth mentorship program and the expansion of that and just to stay connected with you and your work, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Well, we're very engaged with social media, um, Instagram, Facebook, very active, uh, but we're also on online with a good old fashioned website, blackbirdmedicines.ca. You know, we're always open to supporting our community. And like I said, we have lots of different people who uh, are in this collective that comprise it, that have different gifts. You know, any chances to engage with our community, we're always open, we're always available, we're always accessible. So, all the listeners, feel free to engage. <laughs> And on like Instagram and Facebook, is it Blackbird Medicine that people are looking for? Or is it Death Doula Collective? It's Blackbird underscore medicines. And on Facebook, it's just Blackbird Medicines. We have a, a page there. You know, and we also on Instagram, we tag all of our death doulas. So if you uh, want to kind of uh, look at reaching out, like, you know, we always welcome uh, folks engaging through Blackboard Medicines, but we also encourage people to reach out to our, our collective individuals because they have such unique and, you know, varied uh, offerings as professionals and Indigenous educators and facilitators and mostly matriarchs. Check out our Instagram. It's healthy. It's vibrant. It's always got something going on and you can really get a chance to connect with the others there as well. 
And listeners, as we do, we'll put a links to all of the ways to connect with Crystal and Blackbird Medicines and the Death Doula Collective in the show notes. So you can just click there. So Crystal, once again, thank you for taking time out of your day to talk with me today. Oh, miigwech. And thank you so much for this chance to, uh, to connect and connect with so many more others. Appreciate it. And listeners out there, each and every time I say it, thank you for being part of our community, for tuning into the show, for sharing episodes with people in your life that you think might be supported by listening. We have a a new website at Dougie Center. It's the same address, D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G, still forward slash grief out loud. But when you go to that page, it's going to be so much easier to find all the episodes, to read the show notes, to search by topic. It's just, it's like a dream come true. So go visit the website. You can also email me directly at grief out loud at Dougie, D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. Thanks again for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next time. Mm